Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of Koya Sense. Uh, it's a little bit of a side project that's going on, a little bit of a branching out. Um, working title, Queer Sounds, colon, the COVID sessions. Because, you know, without, with, with, with everything in lockdown, everything that's been going on, I, I'm not able to get into the studio. So I'm going to try something different and record from my own home. And by try something different, I mean try again, because there has been failed attempts. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, positive side to that is that I'm now capable of inviting people who otherwise wouldn't have been able to make it to the studio anyway. Um, so yeah, the first installment features the one, the only Elodie Cunningham. Before we start the show, I would like to draw your attention to my support page. It's buymeacoffee.com slash queersounds. Um, I've also got a uh, Patreon up in the um, up in the scaffolding, but you know, I'm still working on that. I'll notify you as soon as that's ready to launch. Um, but yeah, now it's more important than ever to actually, you know, help me help the artists of, of which we play the music in this show. Um, you're not just supporting me, you're also supporting all of the musicians who lent their tracks for this little here podcast. Um, but yeah, with that out of the way, um, let's let's dive right in. Um, yeah. Elodie, an MS Paint artist, a fellow <laughs> podcaster, a meme retweeter, um, but don't let me describe who you are. How about you just do that yourself? Name, pronouns, etc. What you like doing? I'm Elodie Cunningham. I use she/her pronouns, and I do a lot of stuff. I podcast. I make some videos. I watch Gungans. I um. I have completely lost track of what I do in my <laughs> mind. But yes, I do... Um, my biggest podcast is, of course, a BoJack Horseman fancast with Jake Spencer and Conrad Zimmerman. But I also do the Indie Haven podcast with Josh Rivers and Martin Bryson and Things Talk with Josh Rivers. And I also have a bunch of other nonsense, but... I haven't released any of it for a minute, so hopefully I'll have some more soon. Right, getting the creative juices flowing as soon as they're there. Mm -hmm. um, well, I have a um, I have a horror fiction anthology podcast that only has one episode at the moment, but we've recorded parts of the second episode. That's called uh, Babel, and you can find it on the Podhaven feed with the Indie Haven podcast and all that. Alright, I'll just put a link to the Podhaven SoundCloud in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah, glad to help each other out, right? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, that's uh, the one you mentioned first. Is also the one that uh, made me aware of you as a person, like the Bojack Horseman fancast. And I found out about that by literally typing in Bojack Horseman into the podcast app that I use. And it was literally a week after you launched the, the preview episode, like back when you launched it. Um, so yeah, it's all just a happy little coincidence that we're joining this episode, uh, that we're sharing this episode here today. How did you uh, get into podcasts at large? Like what was the first podcast you actually started listening to? 
the first podcast I started listening to was Podquisition, which is Jim Sterling's podcast. Which now, uh, my co-host on Of Horse Comrade Zimmerman is one of the newer co-hosts on that show. But I started listening to that specifically because I ran out of uh, Jim's YouTube content and I really liked it. So I just searched and I found out there was a podcast. And now I listen to a lot of them. Any favourites you want to you wanna name drop? Uh, uh, well, all the McElroy projects are good. My Brother, My Brother and Me, Adventure Zone, all that. Um, Cheap Show, which is a show about two middle-aged Englishmen who go to charity shops, is uh, very funny. Right. And then I also like... Um, well, as I say, I, I've been doing my own horror anthology series, but I like a lot of things like that, like the Magnus Archives and the Bright Sessions and things like that. Hmm. How much of a completionist are you when you're listening to podcasts? Because, you know, I've been plowing my way through 10 years and 500 episodes of McElroy content, and I'm only halfway through. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've listened to every single episode of My Brother, My Brother and Me. Wow, how long did that take? I've a few months, especially since I was listening to other podcasts as well. All right, so I just um, you're actually... when I was in uni, I just listened to podcasts constantly. So like no matter what I was doing, binging through them. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm more of a one episode a day type of person. Do you remember the first podcast you recorded yourself? Because, example, um, when I first starting to tinker around with podcasting a little bit it was like literally me um and a friend in a soundproof booth at um at my uni hum- uh, huddled around one microphone unaware that there was the possibility of making use of a, like a proper studio with like five different microphones with ba- a way better sound quality and an actual proper mixing board type of stuff i basically went round my uni friend Astra Johnson's house and said do you want to record a podcast and we just recorded a podcast on her laptop and that was basically it that was um, The Real Heroes which was a comedy podcast about background characters in video games Right. which we are hoping to do more of eventually but mm. Astra does proper jobs now so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it's about time to get the first track of the day going. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm super excited that <laughs> that it is what it is. Like, it, it couldn't have been more nostalgic for me. Let's just uh, play a little bit of it.
the Route 110 theme from Pokemon Ruby, Sapphire and Emerald. It's the first time it's actually got a proper gaming track or, or um, yeah, soundtrack featured on the show. Um, uh, yeah, released 2002, composed and arranged by none other than uh, Morikazu Aoki, I think, in my, my poorest Japanese pronunciation. I, it's just so <laughs> fantastic that I can get to talk about Pokemon on this podcast because I am certain that Pokemon has played a larger role in my life than that podcasting ever did. I, yeah, it was, certainly it feels like the first video game that I played. Uh, I actually played um, Leaf Green before, mm-hmm. uh, Sapphire and Emerald, which are the two that I played at the time. Um but it just didn't gel with me quite nearly as much as Ruby, Sapphire, and Emerald did. They just there's just something about those games that feels really magical. Mm-hmm. The world just so uh, the the first two games are based on the real life Kanto region and the Kansai region of Japan, which are not particularly exotic. No, um, less interesting vegetation is more similar yeah. to what to what you're known in like England or Western Europe. Yeah, especially Kanto, um, Johto, which is Kansai, is a little more um, different, especially because it's uh, more tied in with the cultural history of Japan. So there's a lot more old Japanese influence on that region in mm-hmm. the game. But I didn't play. I only finished a uh, Gen Two game when there was the Gen Four remix of them. So <laughs> right, right. I actually um, started off with the Gen Two games. Like I believe Gold was my first one, like on on my old school Game Boy Color. And I actually, um, from a nostalgic perspective, I feel like that soundtrack did in fact resonate with me, but not nearly as much as as, as this one. Like it's just got overwritten mm. a little bit. Yeah, I own. I played a lot of Leaf Green, and I owned Gold. I just never finished it. Oh, really? Um, yeah. But I can't tell you the amount of times I completely played through Sapphire and then Emerald. Right. I mean, I also uh, never technically finished uh, Pokemon Gold as a kid because you know, at the end battle with with Red. Um, I just never managed to get there. It's like as, as soon as, as soon as the Johto Elite Four was done, I just got lost in Kanto and started over because at some point I felt like I was stuck and there was no place left to go. So you know, before I actually had the internet to teach me about what Red and the Final Battle actually would have been, you know, we we're talking about my teens at that point. But yeah, I think. If you'd go out on the internet and ask what Pokemon games have the most iconic soundtrack, I feel like a lot of people would agree with uh, with us that it would be like the third generation Ruby Sapphire Emerald games. Like trumpets. A... Exactly! I was, <laughs> I've got in my bylines here, trumpets in all caps. In all caps. <laughs> like, that's, that's, that was also like the main meme, right? Where as soon as the remakes would, um, were announced. Um, yeah, I just played the remakes, and the, there weren't as many trumpets in there, were there? No, not quite. But uh, that track in particular, Route One Ten, yeah, they did a ve- that's a very faithful recreation of the trumpetiness, 
and I very much appreciate that. Yeah, I agree. So out of all of the all of the tracks that that soundtrack contains, um, why did you specifically choose Route One Ten? I think it it really captures the sense of adventure that the game has. I don't know, just um, it feels like the most triumphant and fitting for the environment of the region. I I could have picked Route One Nineteen, which is also which is um from like the rainforest route towards the end. Right, yeah. But no, there's just something about I think it's it's just the use of the iconic trumpets. Um, yeah. I'm personally also a big fan of um Route 115. It's uh not as trumpety soundtrack, but you know um I I just love snowy routes and that and, you know technically in the game it wasn't snow but volcanic ash, but who was I to tell the kid? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I do love that one. I really don't like the um, remaked version of it, though. They added these weird clicks to it. I feel like they're trying to get a feel of uh, wildlife going on there, like as if there's little creatures lurking around every corner. It reminds me a little bit of frogs. <laughs> but yeah, no, I was actually kind of surprised that you picked a gaming soundtrack, um, because, you know, usually people show up here in the musical memory with like a standard pop tune why did you go for a gaming soundtrack uh well it's between how much nostalgia i have for it and the fact that it's the only other music that really sticks with me from when i was a kid to that degree is um the super furry animals and i, I chose them for a different one of the uh yeah we'll get back at those pieces yeah <laughs> but as a kid i didn't really I didn't really have a concept of what music I liked so much. I found it difficult to... I didn't have much of a concept of it, mostly because I didn't really like any of the standard pop tracks that much right. that everyone else liked, and I don't know. So I ended up listening to soundtracks a lot because they were something that I could connect with, with something I understood. Like, I understood games and movies and things like that. So a lot of the songs that... I remember fondly from my childhood are uh, from games or films and things like that. So really, I could have also picked something like the um, the Trade Federation Droid Army from Star Wars Episode One or things like that. <laughs> but um, no, just nothing beats the Hoenn soundtrack for me. <laughs> All right, so there definitely were other options, and but then you also could have picked like a pop tune from uh, from a from a movie for example but this one just resonated with you that strongly it's just, just kind of how how yeah how it went but from there on like you hit a point where you did start developing a specific taste in music how how did that came about um i mean well, let me one... rephrase that because it made it sound like you this it doesn't include a taste in music but you know i'm talking more of a pop sense yeah um, the de defining moment in my memory is a car drive with my parents when I was a kid, and um, I just remember asking, what band is this, because I really like it, and my mum said, it's Super Furry Animals, and then a the next track I said, what band is this, I really like it, Super Furry Animals, and <laughs> throughout the entire car journey, it was just that. 
And that's when I really started thinking about actually liking bands rather than just specific songs and really going out and looking for things that I liked. So that's kind of the defining moment in my memory for that. And from there, what artists did, what artists came about? A lot of the very defining artists for my childhood were things that my dad listened to. The only one that was something my mum listened to really was the Superfair Animals. My dad didn't like them. <laughs> but for dad, it was things like Sigur Ross, um, Mogwai, a lot of uh, more atmospheric, largely instrumental stuff. Which, right. again, t- kind of ties into my enjoyment of soundtracks. Um, that actually makes a lot of and, sense. Yeah, even today, um, a lot of the music that I listen to is soundtrack or instrumental. Uh, like, I-, I was just out on a walk a minute ago, and I was listening to the uh, Near Automata soundtrack throughout the entire walk, so I haven't changed in that regard. <laughs> so could you give me somewhat of a... Um... Like a percentage-based division of, you know, let's not go all the way and say soundtracks versus pop music, but more of a instrumental versus um, songs with vocals in them. I'd, I'd say it's 50-50 at this point for me. Right. I listen to a lot of stuff with words that... Just kind of cleanly separated then. Like you listen to all of the instrumental music and the words come from sound uh, from podcasts. Oh, I guess. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of um, music with lyrics that I do really like, but quite often I will listen to those in specific circumstances. Right. Whereas I can listen to an instrumental song no matter what. I can listen to that while I'm breeding and things like that. So... I think that's part of why it's proliferated so much. It's just feels like there's a lot more I can do when I'm listening to instrumental music. Right. How about we fade into our first track with lyrics for today? Um, <laughs> yes. All of my life I've been hunting. I've been a girl. I've been a boy. Digging my feet into the ground like an apple tree. Wanting to live with a purpose. Skin is a word, love is not a sin People are bad, people are good Just like the moon is a stone But it's a star when it's dark And now she's hiding If you've seen what a heart is You've seen its color If I ever knew how we could fight it I would take care of its children Become that To, to realize that uh, to to find the album it was on because of the two um, the two album covers that just look so similar. Yeah, it's it's because they're intended as part one and two of the same. Yeah, part of the same uh, same project. Apple Tree by Aurora, different kind of human. Step two, released two thousand and nineteen, um, as our queer artist spotlight. I've. Uh, been snooping about the internet for a little bit, and 
um, yeah, well, she basically falls into the pattern of people who who explicitly date men and women, but um, with that actively refrain from applying a label to themselves. Yeah. Which I don't know. I find that's an interesting um, interesting approach to things because I love my labels. How, yeah. What's your take on that? I think that it's it's just up to whoever it is who's it concerns. Oh yeah, that's like, definitely true. But like, uh, I wouldn't like it if somebody uh, preferred not to put a label on something and also had a go about other people using labels and vice versa. I I just think it's um. If someone doesn't want to constrain themselves to a label, then I think that's fine. Is it but also why I picked labels a... can... Oh, sorry. Is that also why I picked uh, Aurora as our queer artist of the week? Mostly, I just wanted an excuse to talk about Aurora because uh, <laughs> she's. Um, I think she's fantastic. As it's, it's her music is both very ethereal and mm-hmm. also can be very intense at the same time uh, I picked Apple Tree in particular uh, partially because it feels like it feels like a queer song even though the, the words don't necessarily specifically talk about queer identity but somehow it just resonates with me right. in that sense um, and also it's just one that I've recently, it's, it's one that I didn't like so much when I first listened to it, but now is pretty much my go-to to listen to. It's kind of grew on you. Yeah. Um, my dad used to talk about music in terms of, uh, growers and showers. He'd say, uh, something he liked right away was a shower and that would usually not end up being his favourite. A grower would be something that he didn't really like to begin with, but by the time he'd listened to it a few times, he was really into it. Right. And for me, Apple Tree is very much a grower. I still think about music in those terms quite a lot. I think you're not the only one in that. I feel like it's, um, it's a very common way to approach approach music it's just fun that you've got these explicit terms for it like a grower and a a shower Mm. Um, I feel like there is a pun hidden in there somewhere about how an apple tree grew on you or something I don't know (laughs) Um, uh, when when I was digging around Aurora's uh, back catalogue though uh, apparently Mm. there is this um, one track that the rest of the fandom has kind of embraced as a queer anthem, being Queendom. Um, so I didn't actually look into that song, but you as a connoisseur of their their music, why um, what, why didn't you pick that one over Apple Tree? Uh, this doesn't resonate with you the same way? It, yeah, it feels, it feels more explicitly queer. Um, it, it definitely 
it hints at a relationship between two women throughout the song. And, um, but it just doesn't resonate with me and it doesn't quite give me the same... It doesn't speak to my queer experience the same way Apple Tree feels like it does. And I don't know, I, it's difficult for me to explain exactly why that is. Because I can't tell you what about the song is specifically queer, but it just, yeah. Right. Sorry, my uh, my words are failing me here. <laughs> I mean, that's what music can do to us, right? Just sometimes just yeah, um, yeah. leaves you speechless. But um, let's let's get into your own um, queer experiences a little bit. Like, um, how did you go about it? Well, it for me, there's a lot of memories from childhood. And then a big gap in between where I think I was just in denial and then actually moving on it after I was around 15 was when I started coming out as trans. Uh, when I was a kid, I very distinctly remember things like uh, wearing the Cinderella dress that we had in my primary school and playing it off as a joke, but actually... It really stuck with me as a memory. Um, and also, every episode with gender swapping or body swapping and things like that in cartoons and things always stuck with me as my favourites and gave me a feeling that I couldn't put my finger on at the time. Uh, but then, as I grew up and... Uh, well, school is a place of very rigid toxic gender roles I think Right. it's not yeah it's not seen as good to have any kind of gender discrepancy I don't know how to explain it but yeah. I was already um, I was bullied a lot specifically people said that I seemed gay that I walked like a girl and things like that not that I actually understood what all that meant Right. but at the time, I, that kind of pushed me into being aggressively cishet. Uh, trying to uh, trying to keep up appearances a little bit. Yeah, but I, I just couldn't. And then when I was a teen, I got onto... Well, I, I got into... I almost got into, like, 4chan subculture stuff at first. Right. But um, there was, like, this community, and this goes back to Pokemon again, <laughs> this community of, like, page, Facebook pages named after Pokemon, but that were just full of edgy 4chan memes. And it, it called itself the community, and I don't really know how this came about or how I ended up getting into it, but I distinctly remember um, somebody who... who was genderqueer commented on one of my posts on there and I remember going on their profile and just not understanding why I felt the way I did when I was looking at their profile. This was a um assigned male at birth person who was genderqueer. Right. Um and then a little later I got onto Tumblr and then I started to learn more about what it meant to be trans and obviously I, I'd learned about stuff when I was younger but the t 
TV programs aren't exactly kind a lot of the time, right. especially comedies. And you kind of internalize things. But then when I started to get more uh, positive representation, even if it's just from people being uh, actual trans allies and trans people on Tumblr, mm -hmm. it really changed my perspective and I started to come to terms with the feelings that I'd always had. A sense of validation, looking, seeing that you're not the only one who goes through this. Yeah. Yeah, that can be magical. And that really t drew me away from the uh, the four channing subcultures. I I fell off of those entirely. Yes, um, replacing uh, toxic environments with with healthy and curing ones. Yes, and yeah, I started coming out properly in twenty fifteen and onwards. Now. I'm out to my mum and stepdad and a few other family members and all of my friends and I work as Elodie. I'm on medication and everything. Right. Not that I have it right now. I lost my medication on the way back from Japan and they're not producing it during the coronavirus crisis. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't have my hormones right now. That's shitty. Yeah. Um, my biggest... My biggest regret is that I didn't come out to my dad before he passed away in 2015. Mm. Um, but what can you do? There's not really anything I can change now, so I'm just trying to live as authentically as possible. Yeah. Now. Live your best life, try to prevent future regret. Yeah, and I think that's part of why I've been... It's part of why I accelerated so much. I'm I'm quite I'm the sort of person who puts things off if I'm anxious about them. Mm -hmm. I stopped putting things off quite as much when my dad passed. That's such a uh, I don't know. I mean, we talked about uh, our trans experience in previous conversations, just like applying preparation to the show, but. You didn't formulate it in such a, I don't know, I, I almost want to say heartwarming way, but that's not the right word for it. I'm feeling overwhelmed by this combination of your, your, your dad's passing and your own coming to terms. As I mentioned, a lot of my musical taste comes from my dad. I inherited his entire CD collection. Um, so... A lot of my musical identity is tied with my memories of my dad. Um, so, mm. yeah. All right. I feel like we both kind of need a need a little <laughs> bit of a breather. Let's um, get our third track of the day go. Thank you. 
sound apologetic about it being a little bit more intense than the other two I don't know it's um we were talking very sincerely about all that stuff and then we've got uh right feels like feels like an abrupt transition yes I almost find it funny how much different this is but yeah I mean one thing I will say is that a lot of my early live experiences, live, my brain got very confused then because live experiences and life experiences are very similar. So I just kind of stopped because my brain short circuited somewhere. Ah, oh, <laughs> um, right, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of my early live experiences were with my dad because he was a photographer, mostly for Bournemouth Football Club, but also for the Bournemouth uh, Daily Echo. Mm-hmm. And so he got a lot of um, free tickets to concerts in exchange for reviewing the concert and taking photos of it. And right. he'd take me along to a lot of them. The song we've chosen here is absolutely nothing to do with that. <laughs> All right, so you have seen Super Furry Animals. You've just never heard them play The Man Who Doesn't Give a Fuck Live. I have. I have. I just um, just never saw it with my dad. Ah, right. Super Furry Animals. I I saw a lot of different bands with my dad. I almost exclusively have seen the Super Furry Animals with my mum. I've seen a couple other things. Uh, Almost every time they've toured since around 2006, me and my mum have gone to at least one of their concerts. And this track is usually their big showstopper. This is the song that they they usually play it, as the last song of the set, right? They will go for a. They will play the normal length of it, and then leave the stage, and then they will come on for the encore, and play a intense, uh, twenty-five-minute version of the song. Usually, usually in yeti suits, and play a twenty-five-minute version of the man don't give a fuck. The reason I chose it specifically is because the last time I went and saw them which was just after the day after the well second to last or third to last I guess election in the UK now in the last few years. I mean who keeps track of them? The last time yeah (laughs) we've had a lot of them. The last time David Cameron was elected this song is specifically about it's specifically about the Tories. 
Super yeah. Furry Animals are a very leftist band. Uh, their albums, on the back of them, all of them say non-violent direct action on them. And this, The Man Don't Give a Fuck, is a song about the UK Conservatives. Um, uh, I'm just going to get the lyrics up for a second. Yeah, go for it. It's specifically the lines... Out of focus ideology, keep the masses from majority, but um, really clue you in. And then the rest of it is just about how the Tories just, they don't care about the people at all. Right. They are just in it for money and power. And it's just a song about being angry about them. <laughs> It feels more like a song of raw emotion than anything else. A lot of their tracks are more, like, cognitively leftist. They'll have more... They'll just be a full track with lots of words about political stuff. But this one Mm. is mostly just swearing about how shit the Tories are, and I appreciate (laughs) that. Uh, When I saw it live that time... Uh, on the screen behind them, they were playing video footage of conservative politicians over the years in the UK and other countries, and then towards the end, when it was really getting ramping up, David Cameron's face flashed up on the screen in sort of a strobe effect of his face in black and white, <laughs> and everyone in the room was so riled about it, because it was the day after the election, Everyone was jumping and screaming along to it. I, me and my mum were both there swearing our heads off. And it was just such a such a cathartic moment after such a horrible day. Proper feels like relief. You know, release of, of, of bottled up energy going on there. Bottled up anger. Yeah. I mean, if, if you want more very leftist Super Animals tracks. Inaugural Trams is an entire track about a uh, a social public transport system and how it's cut emissions and improved welfare and stuff. Oh, wow. Uh, and then the track Inconvenience um, includes the line Tory scum ruining my fun, and I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just something about the raw emotional energy of the man don't give a fuck is right. really resonant with me. Uh, one fun fact about it is that it used to be the song with the most discreet individual swear words in it. With How's every that? time they say fuck. Almost all of the lyrics are just the line, you know, they don't give a fuck about anybody else. The amount oh, right, of times yeah. they said fuck mean, meant that it had the most swear words of any like um, song that had ever hit the charts until an Insane Clown Posse song took it over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so not even like what's that Limp Bizkit song where they basically say fuck every other sentence? Yeah. Well, this, yeah. this song says fuck every sentence, basically. Okay, yeah, true. Fair. <laughs> uh, so... 50 times, apparently. Originally, if um, if 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 I can believe Fred Durst and uh, his counting skill, Hot Dog only contains uh, forty six fucks in 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 their fucked up rhyme. 
Uh, I can't believe I'm <laughs> quoting fucking Limp Bizkit on this show and better than that. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I'm kind of not surprised that Super Furry Animals is such a, such a leftist band, but I still haven't quite figured out why it doesn't surprise me. Um, because somewhere in my mind, I just kind of made the assumption that, all right, they're a Welsh band, and the Welsh being oppressed for that long, that's why they are obviously political. But yeah. I feel like that's not as much of a logical one-two step that it that, that my mind makes it out to be. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of Wales is quite conservative now. It's been so integrated with England for so long that the majority of the public there are conservative, unfortunately. Welsh leftists tend to be more intensely leftist than a lot of other people. (laughs) The the culture of Wales has always fascinated me in general, but I think a lot of that does, rather than coming from my Welsh roots, comes from how much I've enjoyed the Super Furry Animals. A lot of their music is in Welsh, so I've picked up a couple bits and pieces from that, but it's Welsh as a political statement. Right. Almost none of their albums don't have any Welsh on, and some of their albums specifically only have Welsh on them. Their track, The International Language of Screaming, <laughs> is uh, is about um, how... Even if there's cultural divide and language barriers, everyone understands screaming and shouting, so let's all scream and shout together. There's a story um, that I read about them once where there was a Welsh language music festival. Mm -hmm. Uh, They got invited reticently because they did so much work to um, save the Welsh language because it was really dying a few years back. But... They were almost not invited because some of their songs are in English. Right. Um, And then in the end, what they did was they handed out lyric sheets for that song, the International Language of Screaming, in a lot of languages. I don't exactly remember how many, but it was so that anyone could sing it in their own language and everyone would be able to understand each other even though they were singing their own cultural language. That's pretty Um, cool. Yeah, it didn't go uh, very well over with the event organisers and they did get kicked out. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of crazy stories about that band. I definitely recommend the uh, the book Rise of the Super Furry Animals. It's the most interesting book about a band that I've read. Have you picked up on any more Welsh artists from there? Like people who actually... Yes. Um, there's a band called Inul, which is um, a Welsh beach rock band who are really good i found them because uh griffery's the main the lead singer of the super furry animals he does solo work i saw him live and they headlined for him and there's also gwenoch who's a um leftist industrial post-rock singer who sings everything in welsh i found her again she supported super furry animals when i saw them a few years back I also think it's cool, like, the Welsh language is kind of making a resurgence in music. Like, there's actually stuff such as, uh, like, Wel- Welsh Music Day, that type of stuff. Yeah. I was almost at a point where I was going to try and actually say that in Welsh, but I figured that wouldn't actually make sense because no one would be able to understand it more. Have you heard of uh, Adwaith? Not off the top of my head. It's kind of post-punky, and all of, their, all of their lyrics are in Welsh as well, so that's pretty cool. It's something I just kind of actually 
came about when I was actively looking for Welsh music because that language is fucking fascinating. Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of the resurgence in Welsh, especially in the arts, can be traced back to the Super Furry Animals because that was something that Griff Rees really wanted to do from the beginning. Makes sense. Because uh, he grew up with Welsh, but by the time he was starting to get into his adult years in the 80s and 90s, it was just completely dying out. But how, how do people in the UK perceive politics and music in the first place? Because, you know, in the Netherlands, it's largely glossed over. It's like, all right, there is a language in... Here is a song in a language I do understand, but I'm... But let's not focus on the lyrics too much. This just sounds good. I figure yeah, that I if think, English uh, is actually your first language, then politics and lyrics actually get perceived a whole lot different. Yeah, well, funny story about that. Recently, Declan McKenna's track, um, British Bombs, which is quite possibly his right. most overtly political track. He, he's he's a very leftist artist. All of his tracks are at least somewhat political. But that song is about war crimes and bombings committed by the British. It was premiered on a London radio show and the the presenter obviously hadn't listened to it beforehand. Talked to Declan about it a little bit, but mostly just about the music itself. Um, then played it and then was obviously very uncomfortable after listening to it. <laughs> uh, but then tried to uh, just kind of play it off as, oh yeah, that was a good pop track. <laughs> I think a lot of the uh, a lot of people just want to ignore that politics exist and when musicians try and put politics into their music it's either brushed off, ignored or the music itself is shunned for being too political Right. people here don't like to engage in politics very much, I know that's the case everywhere but no politics at the table is probably the, the one of the biggest adages used in Breton, people don't People don't like to talk about politics here, and I think it's important that musicians do talk about politics because it's music is such a raw and it really gets into the heart of you. Mm -hmm. It's just something about politics put into a musical perspective can just it can deliver the message in a way that anyone can understand. Right, yeah, it's not just the international language of screaming, but also the international language of music. That's it. Um, anyone can understand music. Anyone can engage with music. Music is a common factor for humanity in general. When you, when you put your political message into the context of music, it kind of democratizes your message. Because not everyone is going to read a stuffy political manifesto right but anyone can listen to the man don't give a fuck yeah that's definitely true that's definitely true and i would recommend people listen to that um in the meantime let's move on to our last track of the day i can talk about music all day <laughs> that's the idea of this podcast right that's so lovely like everyone just gets so passionate about music and i love it i kind of forgot what the last track you had was it's tracy Emin. By Dream Batches. I sit on this airplane with my tray table full of lists. I set my clock back three whole hours on my wrist. I knock everything to the ground just as it's almost time to land. I bend into the aisle, gather papers in my 
not gonna lie, I wasn't familiar with this artist before you introduced me to them, but... I don't think many people are. Yeah, but and it's This a... is perhaps the most obscure music that I have. <laughs> is that why you picked it? I picked it because of the story of how I found it. Is... Ooh, let me hear it. I found the album San Francisco's in the basement of a used bookstore in central London on sale for one pound <laughs> I picked it up just because it looked like the sort of thing I might like I adore this album oh it's, that's fantastic it's an album that I think as an album it's the album that I listen to most I looked into it this album was not released on a label it was released you can only get it on Bandcamp uh, and it came out like something like 16 years ago I think maybe a bit more uh, yeah well I think if I look up the Bandcamp right now it says 2005 yes so 15 years ago mm-hmm. um, I never would have found this band any other way yeah, that's... I got and... back listened to it and immediately it clicked with me that's so cool. Yeah. It really shows the additional value of your local record shops. Yeah, yeah. I would be lying if I say I wouldn't be pushing an agenda there because, oh my god, I love record shops. Like, just a crate yes. digging and browsing through. And... Yes. Uh, you said you inherited all of your dad's CDs. Like, how many are we talking here? Because I've got, like, 500 myself. Brag, I know, but still. Well, he definitely had over a thousand. I sold the ones that I that didn't really mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. Generally ones that we didn't really share in common or weren't that big of a deal to him. I just... I sold, but I still have... I definitely have at least 500 CDs. Uh, that's not including the ones that I bought myself, which are quite a lot as well. <laughs> a lot of people, when I'm, when I'm at work... Uh, people just expect that I'm listening to stuff on Spotify and ask me to put things on. And I'll say, oh no, I'm listening off my own tracks. And they'll say, oh, you buy everything. And I say, yeah, I get it off my CDs. And they're surprised that I have CDs still. They genuinely think that there's no point in having a CD when you could just have digital. But there's something right. about a CD. What's the last CD you've put on? It was actually the uh, the first disc of the Near Automata soundtrack. I listened to that. All right, um, so you've got like a proper disc now. Yes, I got that in Japan. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I got that and the complete um, Omega Ruby Alpha Sapphire soundtrack, which includes the original Ruby and Sapphire soundtrack. Uh, got both fantastic. of those in Japan. I mean, we're talking about it. I kind of caught myself doing the same thing as your co-workers because you did mention that you were listening to that soundtrack on your way to the store earlier. Um, yeah. And I just also kind of assumed it would have been, you know, you listening on your phone through Spotify, but... I was listening on a, a ripped copy from the CD. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so I cool. wasn't out there with a Walkman, though. That, that, that's a step that I haven't gone to. Oh, <laughs> uh, I wish I had a Walkman, mate. I would just own that, that, that image of... I mean, it gets a little bit pretentious, but that might just be why I love it. Yeah. That's something about pretension that is quite appealing. It is, isn't it? Yeah, especially if you know you're being pretentious, because then you get to be extra pretentious because you're fully aware of it. <laughs> yeah, and just own up to it. Yeah, well, most of my uh, 
most of my favourite CDs that I own I got in charity shops or used bookshops or record stores so I think it's a bad time that we go and wrap up um, the episode um, mm-hmm. but before we do I've, um, I always like to end on the same question being how does music define your queerness there's a raw euphoria that comes with dancing by yourself to music and really embracing who you are. I don't know, there's just something... Sorry, (laughs) I'm losing my words here. That's alright. But there's just a... um, There's a, a joy where you can... There's not very often when I feel great when I'm considering myself as a person. Like, sometimes you just kind of switch off and you go on autopilot and you're not thinking about how you are a human being who has, who is existing in the world. Yeah. Just kind of uh, go about your day without thinking about it at a meta level. Yeah. Um, the only time when thinking of myself as a human being and all of the things that entails, my queerness, my everything where I I can also feel happy about it. One of the only times for that is with music. Wow. That's a very insightful answer, Elodie. (laughs) 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 All right. Um, With that, this has been Queer Sounds, colon, the COVID sessions. Uh, It's a working title. If you've got any better suggestions, feel free to hit me up. You can do that on the following places uh queersoundspod.tumblr.com um on twitter at queersoundspod um you can also just fill out the contact form on the website queersounds.com um please consider supporting the show buymeacoffee.com slash queersounds and as promised um uh, keep an eye out for the up and coming patreon page um, yeah, I want to thank Elodie for making time to be on the show in these crazy, crazy times, and I want to thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.